Welcome to the Lowdown Podcast. This edition was produced specially for Columbia Alumni Leaders Experience 2020. Climate is so integrally connected to our foreign policy goals, to our national security goals, to our domestic economic goals, to our health goals, that we actually have to act on it in order to make progress on all those other challenges too. Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet? And this episode is dropping on Tuesday, November 3rd, which in the United States is Election Day. So if you have not already, get out there and cast your ballot. Obviously, this is a big one. This election is really going to have consequences for generations to come and allow us an opportunity to reshape the way that we are considering climate change and environmentalism and the role of government in addressing those things here in the United States and around the world. And as such, there's nobody who I would rather have on the pod today to help us understand not only what's at stake, but what the government can do to, again, be a leading force for positive change around this issue of climate change. And that person is Jason Bordoff. Jason is the founding director for the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. And before that, he was the special assistant to the president, President Obama, and senior director for energy and climate change on the staff of the National Security Council. So he is 100% the person that we would want to talk to to figure out how we are going to be able to muster the political will that is needed to do all of the things that we need to as a country in order to get us on the right track. Now, obviously, with this election, there's two potential outcomes. Um, We focus our conversation mostly on the hypothetical wherein Biden wins the election, not because we think that's most likely, but because in terms of a conversation around how the government can really pull the levers that it will need to in order to spur the amount of change, the amount of economic incentives, the amount of support for ingenuity and innovation and in be able to tackle this problem or even address this problem of climate change. That's the more interesting conversation to have. We sort of know what President Trump would do based on the last four years, and there's not that much room for optimism and for speculation on tremendous amount of pushing forward with progressive energy policy. So for the sake of this conversation, we imagine a world in which Biden is president. And by the time you're listening to this, we will probably have a better idea about whether that's going to pan out. So before we get there, I want to give a quick shout out. Jason also hosts his own podcast, the Columbia Energy Exchange, where they get into the wonky weeds on all things energy policy, the global energy environment. It's fantastic for those energy nerds amongst us, of which I am proudly one. Okay. Here we go. This is my conversation with Columbia University's director of the Center on Global Energy Policy, Jason Bordoff. Okay, Jason, welcome to uh, this election special edition of Who's Saving the Planet? How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Good to talk I- with you. I'm so glad to talk with you. You are the one person with whom I would want to be able to talk on when this is going to be airing on the most auspicious day of November 3rd. And I just got to ask, how are you feeling? Uh, Cautiously optimistic. I mean, I should say that Columbia is a nonpartisan institution. We run a nonpartisan research organization, (laughs) but having worked for Presidents Clinton and Obama, it won't surprise you who I uh, would like to see emerge victorious, hopefully on election day, if not uh, some number of days after that. Um, 
So we'll see. I, th I think the country is ready for uh, something different. Someone who listens to facts and science and has a really strong team around them and uh, sort of in, will protect and defend sort of our cherished democratic institutions. And for someone who spent a lot of time in um, foreign policy and national security and thinking about the intersections of that and energy and climate change, you know, will rebuild America's respect and position of leadership in the world and rebuild our international alliances. I think that's pretty important. So the polling looks good, but you know, uh, everyone's got to work hard until the last minute because you never really know about these polls. Absolutely. I, I definitely feel like there's this low level uh, amount of anxiety that is coursing through most of the country right now, sort of wherever you are. So we'd like to start off with sort of um, just a just a check. How's everyone feeling? So you alluded to your uh, auspicious passing career. And I want to take a minute and and set the stage for the audience and for everyone's listening so that they have a good sense of where you're coming from. And what led you to uh, this point and specifically to create um, the institution at Columbia? So would you mind just giving us a short rundown of the work that you've done and how that progressed into academia and where you sit right now? Yeah, sure. So right now I'm a professor of practice at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, and I direct something called the Center on Global Energy Policy, which I created when I got to Columbia about eight years ago after serving in the Obama White House. And basically my career has been moving back and forth between either energy and climate policy making or policy research. Uh, worked in the Treasury Department during the Clinton administration, worked in the White House at the National Security Council, and also the Council on Environmental Quality and, and National Economic Council during the Obama administration. And then worked at research organizations in kind of other times like the Brookings Institution. And so, you know, when I was a policy, the, the idea for the Center on Global Energy Policy was to really create something that um, I wish there was more of when I was mm. a policymaker. And so as a policymaker, you're dealing with a huge number of complex issues that are coming across your desk. Uh, you don't have enough time to get up to speed and learn as much as you need to, as quickly as you need to. Um, you have a lot of incoming information from advocacy groups, whether it's the private sector or even environmental groups or people who have an agenda. And the energy world is changing incredibly quickly, obviously from the impacts of climate change, which we are seeing each and every day to the shale revolution, geopolitical issues, sanctions against Iran, like a whole range of issues. Yeah. And so what I needed and wanted was who can I call that's an independent, um, analytically rigorous, has a lot of expertise, but objective and can help me understand these things in the formats and the timeframes that I need to understand them as a policymaker. And there's so much power in the depth of expertise in academia but I think academics struggle sometimes to make that expertise useful to people outside of academia in the ways in which they need it. So the idea for the Center on Global Energy Policy was gonna be build something within one of the world's great research universities that um, took the breadth of expertise across a faculty like Columbia, from climate science to foreign policy to economics and on and on, and organize that around big research questions where the output is designed to be useful to people who are making policy decisions. So you, you said one word in that, which really, uh, we well, said many <clears throat> words, but one word specifically, which really caught me up because it, uh, it made me think about the antithesis to what you are talking about. And that word is objective. So some uh, centers uh, for energy policy, which is going to be able to call balls and strikes. And the reason why that caught me up was because you read so much about the influence from private interests and organizations through an academic channel. 
to sort of like launder their opinions so that they seem more appropriate or consensus that make their way to inform a specific agenda and largely with energy policy. So we've seen that large institutions or large energy concerns are not above funding different academic institutions, having studies contrived or created to sort of build their narrative. How does the center that you stand that you created stand in opposition to that? And how do you make sure that it, it is not it is not able to be I don't, I don't use the corrupted, but like sucked into that world? Well, again, we're part of Columbia University and, and we work with the faculty all across the university to do research projects. And so Columbia is, you know, I think one of the most well-respected independent organizations. They have a ton of processes, committees, conflict of interest policies for all yeah. the funding that comes in, whether it's from whatever it is, whatever source it comes from. And, uh, and, and I think the faculty that are working on different projects pursue their research independently wherever the facts uh, may take them, regardless of the full breadth of what's in the Columbia sort of funding pot coming from yeah. annual giving or from the endowment. So in full disclosure, I am also a graduate of Columbia University, and that was a little bit of a shill to make sure that we got a shout out for Columbia. So I'm glad <laughs> that I'm glad that they got some of their props. Um, do you think it's a problem, though? Is everything I just said from an outsider's perspective, is that something that that is hard for policymakers to discern? Is this source of information good or bad? Well, I think there's a lot of sources of information out there. And, and you know, some of it is more independent, rigorous, serious than, than others. And so obviously there are institutions that, uh, that exist to serve a particular mission or, or, or kind of a front for some particular interest group may call themselves think tanks or call themselves uh, something else. So I think you know what, what policymakers need are the most reputable, and there are great think tanks out there too, like Brookings mm -hmm. or the Council on Foreign Relations or some others that have over decades built a really strong reputation for the quality of their work. But I think one of the most respected places we have in society, generally speaking, is our great research universities. And so, um, so to be sure, if you look across the board, uh, at research organizations that come in many flavors. And there are think tanks that are very rigorous and there are think tanks that are kind of out there to you know, serve a particular interest or created by some industry association or something else. Yeah. Um, but, the, um, but, but, but universities, I think, are a place that over decades or, or hundreds of years in some cases have really built up a reputation for trust and independence and rigor. That is uh, something that really needs to be protected and respected. And certainly I think that's what I've seen at Columbia anyway. Yeah. Well, one of the outputs that you have from, from the center is a series of reports. And uh, I wanted to talk specifically about one that you put out recently called Energizing America. In that report, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to read this so that I do not, so I, I am not subject to my own dyslexia here. Federal funding <laughs> is critical to US energy innovation. Emerging clean energy technologies face steep barriers to market success, risk-averse incumbent firms, Byzantine regulations, and the inertia of existing infrastructure and subsidies built around fossil fuels can sink even the most promising ventures. It will take a strong and sustained public R&D investment to stimulate massive private investment for deep decarbonization. Now, on this podcast, we have an opportunity to talk to one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of the people that sort of that is referring to small entrants to this marketplace that have a new idea that's going to challenge the incumbents in the status quo. 
And what they often say is not only is it hard to build a company to begin with, but to build a company in the energy sector, doubly hard. And then to do it in the face of these headwinds, nigh impossible. They would love to be able to turn to the government and say, help us, help us with these monies. But it's often a tremendous amount of red tape. It takes a long time to get the money. It's conditionalized in terms of like, you need to be able, you are now beholden to some other benefactor, which is the government, which can be tricky in and of itself. And it just takes a long time. So often by the time, even if they have a good idea, you have to move quickly in these markets. Talk me through this idea a little bit and how that is going to really help these startups that are creating the technologies that are going to see us through the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, so what we tried to do in that in that report, that, that was a good example of what I said a minute ago when I think of our mission is trying to be produce academic research that is helpful and useful to policymakers in the formats and timeframes they need. So about a year and a half ago, we were sitting there thinking, what are the big policy questions that might be coming around the corner when a window for policy opportunity might open up in Washington? And those when those policy opportunities open up, you know, they, they close, they can close quickly too. So you have to kind of be mm-hmm. ready to engage. You can't start a multi-year research project at the time. And we, we saw that there may be an opportunity to kind of go big on energy innovation. We know that renewables are going to do a lot, batteries are going to do a lot, but they're not going to be sufficient for deep decarbonization of the economy. We're going to need a suite of technologies from advanced nuclear to carbon capture to hydrogen and other things. Now, if government is gonna go big on investing in energy innovation, how should it do that? How should it spend the money? How much money should it spend? Where do you start to see diminishing returns? What are the best places for government to invest those dollars to complement, not crowd out the private sector? And what can we learn from evidence and experience about that? So we picked that as our big topic and we said, let's kind of be ready to go when, when there's an opportunity for that. And that I think I'm optimistic will come. And, and by the way, there's some support that's not just a democratic uh, issue. There's support on the Republican side of the aisle for leadership, I think, in, in U.S. leading in, in clean energy technologies. Um, so we, we mapped out a set of areas we thought the government should invest in from early stage blue sky research and R&D that, you know, tends to be too uh, high risk or long term for the private sector to put capital into toward in the energy sector, some of the demonstration and deployment issues, which are just can be so capital intensive that it's difficult for VC or something to step in, try to bridge that valley of death and try to help think about how people, whether it's uh, people who have really innovative ideas for new technologies can get the support they need to bring those technologies to scale and make sure that we can create leadership here in the US for those companies, those technologies and create those jobs. So that's what this kind of report is a roadmap for how policymakers should go about doing. And in the end, we recommended that the federal government across the board, not just the energy department, which does a lot of this through the national labs, uh, triple the size of federal support for clean energy and sort of broke down where we would do that in which technologies and what types of support. So, so many of these things fail by nature of them being startups and being early stage companies. And we've seen that being, we've seen that you, that leveraged in to build a narrative. So like if anyone knows about the government funding energy policy, they probably have heard of Solyndra, which is a tiny, (laughs) tiny thing in what is a very vast space, but it was distorted to be as part of a program that in the end made a positive return for the U S government. You know, we sort of hear about the failures, but on net, the loan program exactly delivered a positive return. So that's also my question, right? Like not only does it need to be structurally sound and not only does it need to be well-researched and thought out, but there's a PR aspect to it as well, where you need to market the successes in it and to, to be able to make 
to gen up some sort of like support for this within the public because the opposition is certainly not shy about marketing the one or two failures. So how and the government's generally not good at that. And to be frank, specifically, Democrats aren't good at that. Yeah, well, because I mean, you, you raise a good point, which is, I think, you know, to to a certain extent, you could argue that actually you'd want the government to have a higher failure rate because if it was investing in things that were quite safe and had, if it was doing better than the private sector, you might just be investing in things the private sector would have funded anyway. Right. So you want to ask yourself, why is the government putting capital into this in the first place? And I think it's because there is a recognition that there is a market failure there. The returns to society vastly exceed the what any one company or one innovator can 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 make in terms of the, the social value of an innovation is greater than what any individual entrepreneur can capture in private value. So there's a argument there for government to invest in these things. Um, you want to invest in, you don't want to be crowding out where private capital would have gone anyway. You want to be complementing it. And in some cases that may mean investing in things that are a little higher risk or a bit longer term where private capital wouldn't wouldn't come in. But because the political costs of a high profile fail, uh, problem like Solyndra is so high, I think it leads, it can lead or it has a risk of leading to a high degree of risk averseness in mm-hmm. where government ends up putting its capital. And so um, you need to be politically smart about these things. Otherwise you can uh, torpedo the whole program, but I think you got to make sure that you're putting capital into things that really can be transformational and uh, you're not going to succeed every time, but if you succeed some of the time, those that, that can really make a huge difference. Yeah. And one of the big issues with cylinder was the price tag. And so I'm curious about this as well. Like how much, how are you going to make these monies accessible to companies that are looking to raise hundreds of thousands, thousands of dollars that are not necessarily, they don't have, you know, the apparatus that you need to lobby the government for tens of millions of dollars worth of grants. Yeah. The, I mean, the, there are many different types of area of support that the department of energy or other programs within the federal government can make available. So some of those you're right. And part of the reason government has an important role to play here is because unlike developing new a new app in Silicon Valley, as useful as that can be, the kind of dollars you're talking about to do small scale demonstration of a new hydrogen plant or a new carbon capture plant, I mean, these are enormous. Right. So you really do need to put a lot of capital into that. But as you said, there are things that can be transformational that are much smaller scale. Yeah. And through tax policy and through different loan programs and through other channels the federal government has. So you heard Vice President Biden several times, including I think in the last debate, talk about the power of federal procurement, mm-hmm. right? The federal government buys a lot of stuff. And it can sort of help if it's if it, it some not all of that is from major providers. Some of it can be from small providers. If it's channeling that in ways that allow people to develop new technologies, that can be pretty innovative too. Um, We've seen that a little bit with the PPE, with small firms being able to come to market and saying, "I'm making protective equipment to fill a hole," and you're having seven-figure uh, grants being metered out instead of you know eight, nine-figure grants. Um, but I think your point is also very well made in that. While there are solutions to this, they require not only intention and a well thought out plan, but political capital. And I think that sort of takes us to the next question is, oh boy, we got a lot on our plate right now to fix. So just scrolling through Biden, and again, we're living in a world right now in theory where perhaps there is a change of administration and any of these things will have a receptive audience in government. Um, We could probably spend a lot of time thinking about the alternative for that, but this is a happy, cheerful, good, good time <laughs> podcast. So we're going to live in a world that there's hopes and dreams. Um, okay. Biden's initiative, Biden's agenda. 
economic COVID relief stimulus package that's got to be on the docket within the first hundred days. <clears throat> he has a huge domestic agenda, college tuition, raising the minimum wage, uh, labor and organization, more rights there, federal housing program, obviously healthcare. He talked about the Biden plan quite a bit in the last debate. Social justice, police reform, it would be, uh, there's no way to not be able to start thinking about how to address that. And now we can talk about climate change. <laughs> how, how, from an insider's perspective, can we lever, how, how do you get this done? How do you, how do you leverage the capital that you need to make climate change on par with these other, in, in many ways, like immediate, or at least like accessibly immediate problems that we have to solve? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And, you know, you're asking a policy wonk. So take the advice with a grain of salt. You want sort of the political uh, political experts as well. But, you know, I'd say a couple of things. First, um, obviously, you have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and do a lot of things because we have a lot of urgent crises from COVID to the economy to climate. We are in a different position, I think, when it comes to climate change um, now than even, you know, a decade ago, which is... Um, a dramatic increase in the sense of urgency around this issue. And I think that's really important and totally warranted. And that's because we're seeing the impacts of climate change every day today, from California wildfires to more severe hurricanes to floods in China and the Sudan and elsewhere, um, because we have not acted for so long that what might have seemed like an approach that made sense 10 or 20 years ago doesn't make as much sense when the carbon budget is rapidly being depleted. And there's, you know, unlike local pollution, where if you pollute the Hudson River for a few decades, once you kind of wake up and realize you've created a, a mess and a problem, if you stop polluting it, eventually the Hudson River will kind of clean itself up a few decades later. Right. Climate doesn't really work that way, right? Once you put a ton of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's going to be there for hundreds of years. So you, you, you need to act in advance before you, 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 you kind of use up the entire amount of the carbon budget, the amount of CO2 you can put up there to avoid any given degree of warming. Um, people recognize now that we have to move really fast um, and, and need to have started yesterday. So that's the first thing. And I think that's reflected in polling. You know, it's really, if you look at, if you poll the American people, do they believe in climate change? They have for a long time broadly said yes. If you ask how important that issue is relative to the economy and healthcare and crime and other things, it was kind of low on the list. Right. That's changing incredibly fast. And it's especially changing for young people. And it's changing on both sides of the aisle, albeit Democrats are higher than Republicans, but they're both changing. So I think that gives a renewed sense of urgency to moving quickly on this issue. And the last thing I would say is that I think it is true and we need to frame action on climate change as being part of and related to all those other challenges you just talked about. If we want to, re we cannot have an economic recovery if we're continuing to pay trillions, billions and trillions of dollars in the cost of wildfires and, and, and hurricane damage and everything else, a resilient economy is one that deals with the problem of climate change and creates a bunch of jobs by building low income, uh, sorry, low carbon uh, technologies. Um, so, so climate is so integrally connected to our foreign policy goals, to our national security goals, to our domestic economic goals, to our health goals that we actually have to act on it in order to make progress on all those other challenges too. Yes. Um, I completely, <laughs> I agree. I'm thinking, I'm just thinking about that list and being like, yes, of course. And I, while I'm always an optimist, I definitely, it's hard to not be a little bit of a, of not a cynic, but you know, it's tough to see 
how these things are going to actually play out in real time when we're, we're staring down the barrel of some very difficult choices and there's a limited amount of political capital and climate always in my life, you know, I'm, I'm 34 right now. And so I've sort of like woken up to this as a lot of people have in the last five, five years, six years, when I've sort of come of age or reemerged from my twenties and I'm like, what do I want to do with my life? And it's become very urgent. And I have only been disappointed by the way that we as, as a government and largely as a society have reacted to that, um, which is just, you know, my story, but I think it's true of a lot of them, right? Where there's this sense of, yes, of course we know we need to do this. And yet we don't. And it's not going to be any easier when you are looking at a political apparatus. And specifically when we're thinking about today, we're recording this on Monday when likely Supreme Court is going to have a new justice on the bench. And so much of the things that can be done without moving- justice who in the confirmation process when asked if climate change was real, couldn't answer that question in the affirmative. I'm glad you brought that up. I was struck by when, when that justice, Ms. Comey Barrett said, um, I don't have views on climate change as though this was something that one would have, like, I don't have views on gravity. I just sort of believe that that is there because it has been borne out. And for a lot of people, that's what climate change is. And the idea that, Somebody who has the ability to influence so much does not share that view as troubling. So let's talk about that for a second. A lot of the things, and let's get into the wonky side of this, because I also am definitely into getting down there. Much of what can be done would be done through um, executive orders or through the uh, executive branch, not needing to go through Congress. However, those are subject to judicial review. And if we have a Supreme Court that looks unfavorably on executive overreach, specifically as it goes, as it applies to regulation of business, which by all accounts, it looks like this is going to happen. How do we, how do we walk and chew gum in yeah. terms of that with this, with everything that we need to do and the time frame that we have to do it? Yeah. And let me just make one other um, quick point on what you said before about sort of the, <clears throat> the challenge with being ambitious on climate, which you're right, has, has been a challenge for a long time, a few things are, are changing. I mean, typically when you talk about large-scale government programs like some climate policy, there's a lot of focus on the costs and it's harder to talk about the benefits. You see sort of the cost of maybe higher energy prices or carbon tax or something like that. Um, and that has been a challenge, I think, in the past. I think what we talk about is we talk about the cost of climate action. We don't talk enough about the cost of climate inaction. Mm -hmm. And those costs are becoming more evident because people are actually seeing that these are not distant, you know, 50 or 100 years impacts on polar bears. These are yeah. affecting us today. We're there. So that, We're living that, through it. That, I think, is um, one thing that is changed. The other thing is that the costs of climate action um, are, are looking more, more, more promising. I mean, A, you're going to create a lot of jobs in the process of creating these industries, but the cost of solar is down 85% in the last decade. The cost of batteries are down 85% in the last decade. The cost of wind is down 50%. The, we've seen so much progress in clean energy technology that actually decarbonizing the US electricity system is not a crazy idea. It's not, a, it's not gonna bankrupt the US economy. We have the technologies to do that in cost-effective ways. So all of those things give me some optimism, although you're right, I don't wanna be Pollyannish about it. It's gonna be really, really hard. Um, and then the scale of the problem. I think that is also one challenge we have. We talk a lot about electric cars. We talk a lot about solar and wind, but electricity you know, is only um, that 
globally, it's about 20% of final energy consumption. It's about 35% of global CO2 emissions. Um, cars are 20 or 25% of oil demand. Like it's a really big, vast energy system and carbon emissions come from lots of different things that we don't think about that are not as salient to us as much as getting in a car and turning on the lights, how you make cement and steel and the shipping sector and how we heat our buildings and all of that. So it's a hard problem and we need to think about it in that broad landscape, which comes to what you asked about, which is the set of policy solutions. And those need to be uh, as broad as possible across a whole range of things. I think decarbonizing electricity is probably one of the first things you would try to do. And that's why Vice President Biden has that as a nearer term target. Um, you're gonna do that, I think in three main buckets. One is thinking about what it's gonna take to rebuild a struggling economy coming out of the COVID crisis and how to deploy meaningful amounts. What is the overlap between things the government can do for economic stimulus and creating uh, economic recovery and jobs that also help build us toward the kind of infrastructure we're gonna need for a lower carbon future down the road. And there are a set of things there that I think make good sense. Second are the regulatory things you talked about, the existing authority the government has under the Clean Air Act. And, uh, but as you rightly pointed out, you know those will be challenged in court and the federal judiciary is more conservative now than it was four years ago, not just the Supreme Court, but across the board. Mm -hmm. So some will survive and some may not. And which is why we also need to be pushing for uh, legislation in Congress uh, to, to put, uh, put some sort of climate policy in place that might be a national clean electricity standard. Maybe it's a carbon price. There are different ways that government needs to put legislation in place to require that over time we start to decarbonize the economy. That's really hard because even if Democrats win the Senate, which is by no means certain, it's gonna be by a very narrow majority. And then questions about whether you still have the filibuster and all these other things and, and whether you can start, and whether you can start to work across the aisle and find um, some moderate Republicans to, to work with on this issue. Lisa Murkowski this week was quoted as talking about you know, carbon tax. And so we both need to move ambitiously, but at the same time, see if it's possible uh, to work across the aisle. And, and those things may not totally overlap because sometimes the pace of ambition is not, uh, not, not, not as high on the other side of the aisle. Yes, sometimes the pace of ambition is not <laughs> as high on the other side of the aisle. I think that is, uh, that is no one- An no understatement. One would, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, let me, it's, add, it's, let me And I should say, you know, it's also because you want policy to be durable. So, you know, let's imagine there is going to be a lot of pressure from the progressive movement to get rid of the filibuster, take 51 votes, just get done what you can. Um, a risk with that strategy, a risk of not doing that is you just don't get anything done. But a risk of doing that is two years later, four years later, you lose the Senate and you just have those policies reversed. And so you want to have durable policy too. And policy that actually does build some bipartisan consensus is obviously more durable, but we're in this challenging place now where we're finding a lot of difficulty building bipartisan consensus to deal with the climate crisis in the time frame we need to. Yeah, I, you got to wonder, every time you try to build bipartisan consensus, you spend time. And right. it, there's got to come a point where it's like, this is way too cliched, but the definition of insanity, trying to do the same thing over again and being surprised when you don't get a different result. Okay. I'm not going to tip the scales on this, but I would say that we need to start exercising the thought process to see how else can we approach this problem without trying the same things that have been done and failed. Because you I, are exactly right. Uh, the price of clean renewable technology is going down tremendously. And yet we are getting closer and closer to a 1.5 Celsius degree heat 
rise in the planet. And so like, it's not going to get there by itself. It's going to need us to motivate that and probably through legislation or through government apparatus. And so a lot of the, when you say us, not just the U S but obviously, you know, it doesn't matter where a ton of CO2 comes from. So this is the most wicked of problems because it's an ultimate collective action problem. And the U S is 15% of emissions. So we got to get the whole world to work with us. Absolutely. And we, at one point, and I'm not so old to not remember, we're the leaders of the free world and could lead by example and to set the standard and say, here's where we are going. We are venturing forth into the future. Come follow. Uh, wouldn't it be nice for us to do that again? And let me ask uh, a very specific question about this. A lot of the people that we talk to, regardless of how they are coming at this problem, everyone's trying to save the planet in one way or another. The conversation often comes back to the same spot which is without a price on carbon, everything is doubly hard and slower. So whether you are talking about reforestation, whether you are talking about carbon offset markets, whether you are talking about personal consumption and how much things cost to the end consumer and how to motivate companies to make things that are less, that are less carbon intensive, without a federally mandated price, it's, it's gonna be tough for us to get where we need to go. One, as a policy expert, make sense of that for, for me. Like, help us understand, is that truly an imperative? And then two, how do we get there and what does it look like? Yeah, I, I think it is an imperative. I, I think um, it is not sufficient. So I don't want to pretend a carbon price is a silver bullet that solves the problem. But I think it makes a huge, huge dent in the problem and is one of the most consequential things you can do. And a carbon price can can emerge in different ways. Obviously, you're going to have a carbon tax. I mean, in a sense, climate change is a very complicated problem. In a sense, it's not that complicated. It's a classic externality. Every time you, um, every time we we undertake a particular activity, we have some CO2 or, or other greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere. That's causing harm to everyone, and we should internalize those costs. Sort of classic, you know. Pagovian economics, how you internalize social costs. Um, Classic. We, the, I can't tell you how often that comes up on the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, so you would say you should have a carbon price and, and people then would make different choices. You know, you might not retire nuclear plants early because you would value the carbon free energy they produce. You might, the economics of how you think about whether your next car is going to be a hybrid or an electric car would look different. Uh, you would make different choices. Companies would make different choices. And we would, over time, gradually shift how we produce and consume energy. Again, it's not sufficient because a carbon price um, doesn't, there's a lot of other market failures. But yeah. You know that 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 um, the the person, the landlord and the tenant, who 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 pays the bill and who decides what the air conditioning you know looks like, all those things might might not play out. So I think we need a and a carbon price can come about in different ways. You can have a carbon tax. You can have a standard where you just have a cap on emissions for the economy or a cap on emissions for a particular sector. So you might say over time we are going to limit how many emissions can come from creation printing electricity in the country and ratchet that down over time mm -hmm. or a percentage requirement that a certain percentage of us electricity has to come from zero carbon sources and that percentage rises uh, over time um, you need policy like that as well as a range of other i think policies to drive innovation invest in r d deal with agriculture and 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 um you know a set of other things too how we think about building efficiency and retrofitting buildings to make them more efficient. And, and um, so I, we have a good sense of some of the things that we're going to need to do. A carbon price would help a lot. Yeah. Well, then from a, for the last question to wrap this up, um, let's say that you're king of the world and tomorrow you, uh, you have been coronated 
and now we are we are all subject to uh, that which Jason has decreed. <laughs> Paint the picture for how we see our way out of this if we weren't living in a world of political and economic constraints. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, you, you, you some a lot of this is actually in in the vice president's uh, plan, but I, I think you would. We would make meaningful government investments in innovation, new technology, and also kind of building the infrastructure. We know that's going to pay dividends over the long term, a national electric charging network, high-speed rail, high-voltage transmission lines to, to you know, incorporate more renewables. So you have large government um, investments that make sense, particularly in the context of economic recovery. You have climate legislation. You have Congress pass laws that limit how much, what, what emissions can be. Um, and uh, could be a, a fixed limit, a cap on emissions that decline over time. It could be sector by sector where you say over time, the US electricity sector has to decarbonize, the transport sector has to decarbonize, but you have binding congressional legislation that caps emissions. Um, and then of course you would still use the regular, you, you, you would probably still wanna use the regulatory authority that you talked about before, particularly because you're not sure if that legislation will be, uh, will be, will be sustainable, especially if it's done on partisan lines. But I think at, even more important or equally important to everything I just said, and we don't always talk about it enough, is what we were talking about a minute ago, which is we're only 15% of emissions. So rebuilding US leadership in the world on this problem, and that it is, starts with, but is by no means limited to rejoining the Paris Agreement, um, we need much deeper engagement with leading uh, emitters around the world, with Europe, not, it's not just China, India, South Asia, the rapidly growing economies. Um, we need to work with and partner with and think about how they can continue to grow energy access. I mean, these are places where people don't have access to energy, where they're still using, you know, biomass for cooking. It's a set of different challenges to try to grow a, a low-income country, help them enjoy even a fraction of the prosperity we have, but do it in a low-carbon way. And I think there's a lot of work that we need to do in foreign policy uh, to make sure that we're engaging with countries in a cooperative way to kind of all hold hands and try to address this challenge together. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing to be living in a time which feels so um, I never know if it's perilous or perilous, but there's lots of peril around. It just is like very anxiety driven. But also we have the opportunity to affect so much change in the way that we comport ourselves as species on this planet. We have the technology and we have the understanding. We just need the collective sort of like reason, you know, that thing to snap into it and perhaps wishing for a, a miraculous moment of collective consciousness is is obviously foolhardy but i think there's there's grass shoots you know there's places in the world where this is becoming more of a salient topic than we could have imagined five or six years ago which makes me hopeful at least uh, look you just had japan this week come out with a net zero by 2050 target china by 2060 and you gotta hold their feet to the fire and you know you gotta make sure that it's not just words and rhetoric but it's met with action um, but, but I think you see a growing number of countries that are setting long-term ambitions uh, and targets um, and, and driven by climate change and also just, you know, the severe air pollution that many of these cities are facing and the public health crises that they're facing. Um, people, people want to have increased access to energy and all the benefits that come with that, but they also want to have clean air and clean water and not suffer, you know, severe heat waves and water shortages and the kind no. of conflicts and refugee migration and other things that we're going to see moving forward. Right. And, and I think that. the thing that makes me most hopeful, and this is kind of what's fun about being at a university is working with young people all the time. 
there is a, a, a remarkable shift when you look at, you know, the level of urgency that younger cohorts have than sort of older generation. And I think that is probably the most reason to have greatest hope that people recognize uh, who will be tomorrow's leaders, how mm-hmm. important it is to move faster on this. And by the time you're listening to this, hopefully they have completely surpassed their historical voting percentage (laughs) that we've ever seen. And young people have shown up to the polls in droves because that is truly the only way that we get all of this stuff done. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. Let me give you one opportunity. How should people go find the work that you're doing, the reports you're doing? What would you want to tell the audience about how they can follow along with your journey? Do you have a podcast perhaps they should listen to? <laughs> well, I appreciate the uh, soft promotion there. So that's yeah, pretty hard. All, that was pretty direct. You know, we, we... is um, on the center's website, which is energypolicy.columbia.edu. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jason Bordoff and the Energy Center is on Twitter. And then we do have a podcast, Columbia Energy Exchange, uh, which you can find on iTunes or Stitcher or your other podcast, preferred podcast providers. Or in the show notes of this podcast you're listening to right now. Big fan of Columbia Energy Exchange, longtime listener, first time caller. So it's a (laughs) pleasure to be able to speak with you, Jason. Well, thanks for having me on. This is a really fun conversation. I appreciate it. It was great. We're gonna we're gonna stay we're gonna stay wrapped to see what happens in the next week, and then to watch all of the policy that you are going to write make its way through our legislative body. Hopefully, we'll have that opportunity. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Okay. Thank you. And that was Jason Bordoff, the director of Columbia University's Center of Global Energy Policy. I, for one, am more hopeful knowing that people like Jason are at the helm of directing our national and international agenda when it comes to combating climate change. Uh, he has a an optimistic and I think a practical vision for a future that is a one that will be sustainable, one that we can be proud of. So thank you to Jason. Thank you for Columbia for lending us, Jason. And thank you for you for listening along. Uh, get out there and vote. And when you're done with that, go to who's saving the planet dot com. We would love to see you. Cheers.